within the Old Testament, there's so many just awesome stories and so many awesome applications. I love the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament because there's just so many different uh, stories. There's so many different applications, so many different you know things that we can glean from the Old Testament. Uh, I mean, I consider myself an Old Testament buff. Right, whenever I have the opportunity to teach somewhere, I, for some reason, I don't do it on purpose, but I always end up teaching from the Old Testament. So I'm someone who loves the Old Testament. But also I recognize that as we go through the Old Testament, there's certain stories in the Old Testament that you could go through them and you're like, man, what's this even here for? Right? You feel like maybe the Holy Spirit made a mistake in including this in our Bible, right, in our Holy Bible, and, and to make it part of our daily reading. But now, so we see that as we go through it, there's always an application. There's always something that the Lord is desiring to speak to our hearts. And so we get here to uh, this portion of Scripture in 2 Kings chapter 6 and, and 7, where it's in the, in the history of the nation of Israel. At this time, the, the kingdoms are split into two. And one is the northern kingdom, which is, for the most part, about ten tribes. And it's the southern kingdom of Judah. It's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we're, and we're looking, we're in the history, historic time of just the time of the kings and the prophets. And so throughout all of Israel's history, while they had, before they had kings, they had judges, but when they had kings, God, always, God also also raised up men, always raised up men, you know, known as the prophets, to speak on his behalf. They were his spokesmen to the people. And we're going to look at the life of, uh, of a prophet named Elisha, you know, who was a student of uh, his teacher, Elijah. And when Elijah... Uh, was was carried away by a chariot of fire. He pretty much left Elisha in charge. Right? He gave him his double blessing, his double portion, his double anointing. And Elisha was used mightily in the Old Testament. He, he was used uh, even more mightily than Elijah. And so we're going to look at just one story of how the Lord used him. And so beginning there in chapter 6 of Second Kings and uh, starting in verse 24, it says, And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army, and he went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. I don't know what they would have used dove droppings for. I don't know if it was a type of food or medication or whatever it was. But the point being is that they were in a severe Famine, and they were in a, in, a, in a time where there was a severe inflation in the land. Now, in the beginning of chapter 6, we're told that, that, uh, that the king of Syria, he actually sent out a band of raiders. A band of raiders, a band, a band of just uh, these, these outlaws into, uh, in, uh, into the nation of Israel to look specifically for the prophet Elisha. Right? And so as they, as they went and they looked for Elisha because they wanted to kill him, we're told that God spoke to Elisha and he told him, hey, look, these guys are coming up right now. They're going to kill you. They're going to try to ambush you. And so Elisha prayed and he said, God, uh, strike him with blindness. And so these guys reached Elisha and they weren't blinded as in they couldn't see, but they were blinded in a sense that they couldn't tell who it was that they were looking at and who they were speaking to because they went to Elisha. They talked to him and they said, hey, we're looking for the man of God. Elisha and Elisha speaking to him said oh yeah I know where he's at he's in Israel here just follow me and he was able to lead them into Israel and pretty much right into uh, the king of Israel's backyard and then all of a sudden uh, the Lord opened the, the eyes of the of those Syrian raiders and they realized like oh man he trapped us right and then the king of Israel came up against them and he he he, uh, he asked Elisha he says what should I do he says should I kill him and Elisha said something interesting he said uh, he said, no, he says, he says, you wouldn't kill someone who you've captured, but instead show kindness to them, feed them and send and send them on, on their way to their master, to the king of Syria. 
And so we're told that after that, so after that happened, we pick it up at 24. It says that now it happened that after this, that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, again, he gathered all his army and went up and he besieged Samaria. And again, because we're talking about Samaria, we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel at this point. And so Ben-Hadad, the king of Israel, after the king of Israel had shown mercy, what did he do? He came back with another army and we're told that he besieged the city. Meaning that he, he had his army set up all around the walls of, 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 of Samaria, keeping anyone, anyone from coming in or from going out. Meaning that no one was able to sell any supplies or they weren't able to, to sell any supplies to anyone else. Pretty much there were, and this is a, a tactic that they would use back in the Old Testament and just in, in old world history, is that one surrounding nation, again, they would surround the fortified cities until the city ran out of supplies. Right? And then eventually they figure out they're going to starve to death and they're going to have to come out eventually. And then once they come out, boom, that's, that'll be opportunity and we'll, we'll take over the city. Right? And so this is what the, what the king of Syria was designed to do there in Samaria and, and, and to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we're told that the famine got so severe. So we don't know how long they were encamped outside of Samaria. But we're told that it got so severe that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. He says, and one-fourth of a cab of a dung's of, of dove droppings was sold for five shekels of silver. And I should just give you an idea of how much that would be. Uh, five shekels of silver would have been equal to a month's wage. And so they're buying a quarter of, uh, of a, a weight of a dove's droppings for, again, I don't know what they would use that for, but the point being is that, man, there was just severe inflation, right? And that's what was going on, again, that, 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 that they were just being starved out, starved to death. And so we're told in verse 26, it says, Then the king of Israel, as he was passing by on a wall, it says that he saw a woman who was crying out to him, saying, Help, help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, then where can I find help for you? It says, From the threshing floor or from the wine press? He says, Then the king said to her, What's troubling you? And she answered and she said, This woman said to me, Give me your son. He says, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son Tomorrow. Now, again, some of those things that are just in the Old Testament that you're like, man, what is going on? Right. But again, this is to show us how severe the famine was in the land and, and that they were uh, that they resorted to cannibalism. Right. But really, we wow. see that it's a result of their of their disobedience to God, because God had already told them in the Old Testament, I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter 28, somewhere, somewhere around that address. That God told them, right, if you obey the words of the Lord, then look blessings upon blessings. And he goes on to say how many blessings will come upon them if they're faithful and they obey the word of the Lord. But they say, but if you rebel against uh, the commandment of the Lord, then famine shall come upon you. And God even prophesies and he tells them in Deuteronomy. Again, I believe it's chapter 28. Somebody could look it up. He tells them you're going to be resorted to eating your offspring or eating the, the, the fruit of your womb. I think he puts in those exact words. And so we see that the nation of Israel, again, for the most part, once uh, once Solomon died, again, the, the nation split into two, right? Um, Jeroboam took 10 tribes up north, up north and he became the king over the northern kingdom of Israel. And we're told that Rehoboam, the son of, uh, of, um, so of Solomon, took two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they became the southern kingdom of Judah. And now... The northern kingdom of Israel, for the most part, they had no good kings. Ever since Jeroboam and ever since his idolatry, every single king that the northern uh, kingdom had, they were horrible kings because they drove the people's hearts to idolatry. And so the nation of Israel, 
is in a place of just deep idolatry and deep rebellion against the Lord. And so they're now they're reaping the consequences of, of their disobedience to God. And so we see that, 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 that the king, I believe it's King Jehoram of, of Israel, it says that, again, he, as he's walking around the land, right, he just kind of scoped everything out, just realized, like, oh, man, we're going to die. Until he runs into this lady, right, she's crying out. She says, help me, help me. And notice what he says. Again, he says, where can I, help, where can I find help for you? He says, from the threshing floor, from the wine press. And he says, well, he says, hey, man, if, if God hasn't helped you, then what can I do for you? And so he's realizing, man, God has abandoned us. Or according to his understanding, he says, look, God has, God has abandoned us, right? If he can't help you, then, 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 then what can I do? So she said, look, man, this lady said, let's eat my son today. Let's eat your son today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. And, and so he said, in verse 20, I said, so we boiled my son and we ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Right, so there's this conflict going on there in the in, in the in the northern kingdom of Israel again because of the famine, some severe things. But really, we see what somebody again they're in the state of just forgetting God. Right, they've completely forsaken the Lord, and we see that. I mean, we're not really even aware of what things we're capable of when we don't have God in our hearts. Right, I mean, man, I think about when I didn't have the Lord and some of the horrible, evil things I did because I had no consciousness of God. I had no conviction of the Holy Spirit. Things that, that I, I sincerely, with all my heart, I'm just embarrassed and, and I'm just uh, just remorseful for, right? Repentant of. And so we see, again, the state of the nation. They're in a state right now where they have completely forgotten God. They walked away from God, right? They've resorted to cannibalism. They're thinking, man, well, he's probably, they're probably going to die anyway, so might as well just eat them, right? They're doing whatever they can to survive, Right? Even if it costs, costs them their own kids. So they're looking after their own desires. Right? Even if it means turning their back on their kids. I mean, that's no different than what we see today, right? Abortion. Right? People giving up their own kids for their own selfish ambitions, their own selfish desires, their own, their own carnal ambitions. And so she said, we bowled my son. And then the next day, I, and she, she hit her son. So, we, so, now, so now my son's gone. You know, and notice she's not even worried about the fact that her son... Is dead and that they just ate her son. Instead, she's like, "Hey, man, we're, we gotta eat her son," and she's hiding him. She, she doesn't even care that, that that they just ate his son. They, they they just ate her son, right? That's all she cares about. Like, hey, well, I'm hungry now, right? I'm trying to I'm trying to fill my belly now, and she's hiding our food. And so he says, and goes on to say there again in uh, verse thirty. He says, "Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body." Again, it was, a, it was a common custom, you know, for, especially for the Jews in their culture, that when they were to express some type of grief or mourning, they would tear their clothes. Right? And then we're told that he's wearing sackcloth, which would have been out of uh, uh, goat hair. And it's a symbol of, of mourning. It's a symbol of, 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 of repentance, a symbol of. Right? And so they were to wear this sackcloth, and they were to be so uncomfortable in the sackcloth that it would be a sign to everybody, look, man, I'm uncomfortable in my mourning. I'm uncomfortable in my, in, in my state right now. And so he's wearing the sackcloth, but we're going to see really that, that he's outwardly showing like as he repented, but inwardly his heart is still far from God. Right? He's showing the outward fruits of repentance, but yet there's no inward change. And so, as, again, we're, he's walking around, he rips his clothes, right, in a dramatic sense. Ah, look, everybody, I'm, I'm so sorrowful about what's going on. I'm even wearing sackcloth. And verse 31 said, Then he said, God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Saphat, remains on him today. Notice that. Instead of saying, man, I should repent. This is coming upon us because I'm leading the nation of Israel in idolatry. Because the people have turned their backs on God. Because the people have, have, have closed their eyes and, and closed their hearts to the Lord. No, instead he says, man, where's Elisha? 
the prophet of God. It's his fault. And I and 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 and, and you know, so be it to me if I don't if I don't cut his head off, you know, by the end of the day, he says. Right? And so we see that man, really the, the king was mad, not at Elisha, but he was mad at God. He was mad at God, and so he was gonna take it on God's take it out on God's representative. You know, and we see really so many people out there in the world, man, <laughs> that they have like this bone to pick with God. Right? They can't get to God. So what do they do, man? You see, oh, he's a Christian. You don't even mess with them. Right? He's God's representative. And so that's what, that's what he's doing to Elisha. Right? He says, again, instead of recognizing his own sin, instead of rec- recognizing his own state, his own fallen state, instead of recognizing that, that it's because of his leadership there in Israel and, 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 the, and the, the spiritual state of the people, he says, you know, it's Elisha's fault. Right? He's mad at God, but he's going to try to get back at God by, by killing Elisha. And so verse 32 says, But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? He says, Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. It's not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And so again, Elisha had this like uh, fine-tuned ear to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Right? And, and God just spoke to him in just such a, a very personal, such a very uh, clear way. And, and this isn't the only case, but as we see through Second Kings, again, many times God would, God would warn Elisha personally and tell him, like, hey, man, watch out because this guy's coming. Uh, when he knocks on your door, he's, he actually wants to kill you, so be careful. Right? And so that's pretty much what God did. The king of, 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 of Israel, again, he sent uh, one of his messengers to go find Elisha to draw him out, and then they were going to kill him. But before he even got there, God told Elisha, hey, man, look, this guy that's coming, you just uh, be careful because he's going to want to kill you, right? He's the king's messenger. And so we see something very, very uh, interesting about Elisha. The king of Israel, right, they're in the middle of a famine. Everyone's experienced the same famine, right? All of them have, have nothing to eat. All of them, like, they're all experiencing the same warfare. They're all experiencing the same condition. The king's roaming around, you know, mad at God, you know, just all irritated. People are eating their babies. All kinds of crazy stuff is going on. But notice Elisha. What was he doing? He said he was just sitting in his house. He was sitting in his house with the elders. And, says, and the elders were sitting with him. That is the elders, the other prophets, right, of the school of the prophets. They were just, hey, man, they're all just hanging out. They had peace with the Lord, right? And there's this different peace that the, that the Lord gives us, even in the midst of trials, right, that this peace that the world does not have, this peace that the world does not understand, this peace that the world, apart from Christ, apart from you having the Holy Spirit indwelling in your heart, and apart from having the God of peace, right, indwelling in you, that, that you can't have. The Bible says this in Isaiah 26, 3. It says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then I think the next verse says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, for in the Lord you are his everlasting strength. Right? Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer uh, and thanksgiving. It says, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Right? And there's this peace that, that, that is available to us. As believers, right? That even if the world is, man, in a famine, even if the world is burning or burning up, is up in flames around us, man, we can have the peace of God. Why? Because we know that God's in control. And so Elisha's sitting in his house along with the elders. And again, as the king sent his messenger, Elisha tells the elders, hey, man, he's like, hey, man, check this guy out, man. He's, he's a son of a murderer, man. It's his fault. We're in this, we're, we're in this condition anyway. And look, he's, he's sending this guy to cut off my head. And he tells him, right, when he comes in, shut the door behind him and we're going to grab him. That's pretty much what's going on. And it says in verse 33, it says, And while he was still talking with them, there was a messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? 
All right, so as they, as they entrap this messenger, notice the king's response. He says, surely this, camal- this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? What, what, what he's saying is, is, man, God is doing this to us, right? God is, God is treating us badly, so why should I even call out to God anymore? Again, not recognizing his own sin, not recognizing that it's, it's the, the spiritual state and the spiritual state of the, of the nation of Israel that's, that's put him in that place. Right? And so God's, God's going to use Elisha to kind of you know, shut him up. And he tells him this in chapter 7. It says, Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. He says, Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about the same time, He says, A seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for, for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And so Elijah's telling him, Look, man, tomorrow, He says, Around this time, tomorrow, Everything's going to be different. He says, uh, a shea is about uh, a 12 ounces, I believe. And so he says, look, man, a, a shea is going to be sold for, for a shekel. And two shea's for, a, bar, for a, a barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And so he's telling him, look, man, God's going to do the impossible. What's like me saying, right? Look, hey, guys, tomorrow gas is going to be 25 cents a gallon. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, yeah, right. Hey, man, tomorrow uh, milk is going to be a dollar. Uh, hey, guys, tomorrow um, the toll roads are going to be free. Hey, it's like, imagine looking at our economy the way it is right now. It's like I've, I've already said, hey, man, tomorrow everything's going to be changed and the prices are going to be like they were like in 1940s. Right? And so notice this guy's response to king. He says, verse 2, So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered Elisha, the man of God, and said, Look, man, he says, if the Lord would, open, would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Right? He's unbelieving. So here's Elisha giving the message to the king. And this guy who was uh, with the king, he tells Elisha, look, man, it's impossible. Even if God were to open a window in heaven, he says, there's no way that can happen. Right? He's doubting God. Right? He's doubting uh, God's messenger. Really, he's doubting God's word. It's his unbelief. Right? And we're going to see that it's unbelief that keeps us from seeing the work of God as it is going to be uh, in this guy's case. And so chapter 6 is kind of just uh, setting the stage and setting the ground for chapter 7 again to, to give us the information on the condition that, that, the, that the nation of Israel was in. Right, such a impoverished, such a such a, a famine condition, and so again back in chapter seven, as God speaks to Elisha, He tells him, "Look, man, tomorrow everything's gonna be different." This guy, he didn't believe. He's like, "Yeah, right, man. It's impossible. It's impossible." Again, it tells you kind of the condition of, of where their heart was at. Instead of saying, "Man, you're right. God is able. God, God can do it." Instead, He says, "Look, man. Even if God Himself opened a window in heaven, there's no way this could happen." Right? Their hearts are far from the Lord, mm-hmm. and so He says. It says, and uh, the second part of, of verse 2, it says, And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So Elisha tells him, Look, man, because of your unbelief, you're going to see it, but you're not going to partake of it. Right? And we see that it's always unbelief that keeps us, again, from seeing the works of God. The work of God. It happened to the children of Israel as they were wandering the wilderness. What happened? A whole generation had to die off. Why? Because of their unbelief. When, when Moses sent the 12 spies, one from every tribe, to go spy out the country, they, they were right there. They were right there at the border of the promised land. They were right there at the, at the border. They were about to inherit what God had been promising them since Abraham. And what happens? He sends out 12 spies. Ten of them come back. They're like, man, no way. There's giants in the land. We're, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Dude, they're going to kill us. And it was only two guys, Jacob, uh, um, uh, Joshua and Caleb. Who were like, no way, man. He's like, let's do this. God's on our side. Let's go, man. We're going to crush them. Oh, man, they're, they're, we're, we're going we're gonna to eat those guys up. Right? We're going to kill those guys. And the people were so mad at Joshua and Caleb because they brought back a good report. That they're like, man, let's kill them. Let's stone them. 
Right? And so we see that the Lord, because of their unbelief, He had to wait till a whole generation died for the exception of Joshua and Caleb in order to bring them into the promised land. And so we see that this is kind of a principle that we see in the, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. So many times, I'm going through the book of Luke right now, so many times as uh, people with infirmities or with sicknesses, they came to Jesus, right? And, and so many times, I, I'm highlighting every time I, I come across it in the Gospel of Luke where, where Jesus says, go your way, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well, your faith has made you well. Right? Different illnesses, different diseases, different conditions, but it's all the same determining factor, faith. Right? And so we see that unbelief, unbelief keeps us from seeing the promises of God. And so for this guy, the, the officer of the king, uh, Elisha told him, look, man, you're going to see it with your eyes, but you're not going to eat of it. And verse 3 says, Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine's in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, now we're also going to die out here. It says, Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, man, then we're going to live. And if they kill us, well, we're only going to die, right? And so keep in mind that, again, there, there's these four leprous men, right? Now, for the leper, they weren't allowed to be in the city because of their disease. So what they would do is they would just hang out on the, on, the, on the outside walls of the city, and they would just depend on people to throw their garbage over the wall, and then, boom, they would eat everyone's leftovers. Because the nation was in such a famine, uh, impoverished state, I mean, if they're hurting inside the city, you could just imagine these lepers outside who were just depending on everyone else's leftovers. leftovers. They were starving. You know, they were like more starving than anyone else. And so these guys, as they're hanging out outside the city, they're like, man, what do we do? We're not supposed to go inside the city, right? It's against the law. But he says, well, if we go in the city, well, there's, there's poverty there too, right? The, the famine's in the city. It's not just outside the walls. He said, inside, it's inside the city. So they say, well, if we go in the city, well, we're going to die in the city as well because of, because of the famine. He says, so let's do this. Let's surrender ourselves to the army of the Syrians. Because again, it's the Syrians who are surrounding the city right now, the city of Samaria. So I look, maybe they'll have mercy on us. They're saying, if we just surrender ourselves to the Syrians, maybe they'll have mercy on us. Maybe, maybe we'll get some of their leftovers. You know, maybe we'll survive. Maybe we'll eat. He says, and worst comes to worst, he says, they're going to kill us, but we're going to die anyway. Right? And so really... What we're seeing is desperate men, talking about the, the lepers, they're desperate men living in desperate times, making a desperate decision, right? Desperate men living in desperate times, making a desperate decision. They're like, let's go for it. What do we got to lose? We're going to die anyway. If they kill us, well, we're going to die anyway. That's all we got to lose, right? And so they say in verse 5, And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they had gone to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. No one was there. Right? And so we see that really what they're doing is that they're venturing out in faith. That's what it is. They're going out by faith. They're like, all right, by faith, we're going to see what's out there. They might kill us. They might not do anything to us. We might, you know, get to dig in their garbage. He says, we don't know, but we're going we're gonna to go see. Right? We're not going to just wait out here on this wall and just die. Die of starvation. They're saying, we're going to go see what's out there. And so as they go out there to the camp of the Syrians, to their surprise, no one was there. And verse 6 says, For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at, at twilight, and they left the camp intact. 
their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. Man. So we see that as they stepped out in faith, we see that God met them. God met them by bringing confusion upon the Syrian camps that were surrounding the city of Samaria. As they stepped out, we see that the Lord brought confusion to them, and we're told that the, that the Lord caused the army of the Syrians to hear. It's not that they heard, but they, they, were, they were there camping out. All of a sudden, they heard noises, and, and they came to the conclusion that the king of Samaria, the king of Israel, must have hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to come and to, and to, and to surround them. So they just they took off, man. They booked it. Like, they, they left all their horses. They left, they left all their possessions. They left all their things. Right? And nobody knew about it. And no one was ever going to know about it unless these four leprous men hadn't stepped out. If they never would have stepped out by faith, then they would have never seen God's provision. They would have never seen God's deliverance. They never would have seen the hand of the Lord working mightily on their behalf. And they would have never stepped out. And it all started by them saying, well, what do we got to lose? Our lives were as good as dead. Right? And so as they took this venture in faith, we see that God had done a work but no one noticed. No one noticed it. And I don't know how long it would have been until someone noticed it. Right? But, but no one would have noticed it unless these guys stepped out. And so, again, as we're looking at these four men, right? These desperate men. Desperate times. Making a desperate decision to save their lives. We see that as we look at our world around us. Man, we're living in desperate times as well. We're living in desperate times. But I don't think the church is... Desperate yet. Right? Taking those steps that we need to take in order to say, all right, God, I want to see you move in my life. Lord, what can you do in my, in my life? Lord, what can you do in my marriage? What can you do in my family? What can you do you know, in my household? Lord, what can you do with my job? Lord, what can you do with my kids? Lord, what can you do in me? And it takes us getting to this desperate state in order to see God move. It wasn't until these four men said, you know what? We're desperate. We'll try anything. We'll risk our lives. We're as good as dead. That God worked. Right? They took this venture of faith. And again, we're living in desperate days, but the church is not yet desperate. And so, as they stepped out again, they see that the, that the armies have fled. And verse 8 says, And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent, and they ate and they drank, and they carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and went and they hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent, and carried some from there also. And they went and hid it. So these guys are just, man, they're feasting. It's like a hometown buffet for them. They're just eating from everything. And not, not just that, but, but the Syrians left silver or gold. So they're like, man, they're hiding it. And, you know, they have good reason to. They probably think, well, if they come back, then I'll hide it. And then I can always just come back for it, right? Because I'm going to hide it. So they're, they're, they're just, man, they're just, they're just feasting. They're just enjoying God's provision. They're enjoying God's blessing. Notice that, right? They're, they stepped out and, and, and we, they saw God move. And verse 9 says, then they said to one another, man, we're not doing right. He said, this day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Now, they didn't have any obligation to tell anybody, right? No one liked them anyway, right? They had been resorted to living outside the walls and eating from people's garbage. They had no, they had, they had no obligation to go and tell anybody what God had done. Right? They're the ones who stepped out. God met them. So this is just their own personal conviction. They're saying, man, you know what? This isn't right. Look at us, man. We're so full. We can't even eat anymore. And they're, the whole city is starving over there. Like, we should go tell them something you know, before something happens to us. Okay, this is their own personal conviction. And notice that, 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 that they didn't repay you know, evil for evil. 
right? Their whole life as they had been struck with this disease of leprosy and had been forced to live outside, had been to, forced to be uh, 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 separate from their family, separate from their loved ones outside of the city walls, depending on people's trash to, to live and people's you know, uh, alms and charity to survive. They could have said, man, psh, forget them, right? Dude, it's all for us. Look, we got gold, we got silver, we can start our own little city even out here. We got plenty of food. Would it still be like a, like a suicide, knowing that they would still be seen that way? If they went and told? No, because they're gonna bring good news. So they wouldn't go all the way inside. And so as they're just, again, coming to their own conclusion, their mind's like, man, we gotta do something about this. This isn't right, right? This isn't right. So they're not repaying evil for evil. And notice what it says in verse 10, it says, so they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city. Again, only the gatekeepers, because they couldn't go all the way in. So they went to the gatekeepers of the city of Samaria, and they told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there. There was not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents were intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. And so the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They, they know that we're hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. So man, he's still unbelieving, right? When the, here, the, here go the leprous men, they, told, they tell the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper tells the king's household, and the, gate, the king gets up in the middle of the night and says, I don't, I don't know what they're trying to do, they're trying to trap us. They know we're hungry, once we go out there and we start eating, boom, they're going to they're gonna be surrounding us and they're going to kill us all. And verse 13 says, And one of his servants answered and said, Please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that they are left in it, or indeed I say that they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. So notice that again, it gives us insight into, into how severe the famine would have been that they only have five horses left. In a huge city like that where typically they would have had at least like 400 they only have five. They probably ate all the other horses, to be honest. They either died of starvation also, or they ate them. And so he's saying, some, one of the guys tells the king, look, man, let's, we have five horses. Let's send some guys out with these five horses that we have, and let's see if it's true. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? They go out there, it's not true, right? They'll die. We're going to die here anyways. Now they have this mentality of, the, of those four lepers, right? They're saying, man, well, let's see. Let's see. You know, let's, let's go out there and let's see. And so verse 15 says, And they went after them to the Jordan, Sorry, verse 14. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see them. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tent of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Notice that, just how Elisha had prophesied, just how Elisha had, had, had told him about. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. Again, Elisha had told him, look man, because of your unbelief, because you didn't believe, he says, you're going to see it, but you're not going to partake of it. And so when, when the guys come back with a good report and the king says, man, it's true. He's like, all right. He tells his, his officer, he's like, all right, man, you're in charge of the gate. I mean, you know, you're in charge of keeping the peace as people are going out. They're coming in to get the food. Everyone's starving. So everyone's probably just rushing the gates and uh, chaos. This guy gets stampeded on. Again, it all started with his unbelief. 
I don't mean to laugh, but just, I'm picturing in my head, it's like, man, this guy, he didn't believe the Lord, and, and he ended up getting trampled over by the people. But it was just as God had said in verse 18. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two seas of barley for a shekel and a sea of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man, and he said, Now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? So it's kind of a recap of what happened. And he said, And he had said, In fact, you shall see with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Moral of the story, don't doubt God's promises. Right? Now there's a lot of things that we can glean from, from this little crazy kind of random story that's here in the, in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament for us. And but really what we see is God's provision. It's God's provision. Again, it wasn't until these guys became uh, desperate, desperate for more, realizing like, man, you know what, we're just dying out here. And yeah. Man, God, there's, there's a God in heaven who can do so much more for us. All right? But it took him not just believing it, not just talking amongst themselves and saying, all right, you know, we should do this, we should do that. No, it took him actually stepping, stepping out, walking out there. Now I say that because that's what faith is. And Hebrews defines faith for us. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things which are not seen. Right? Faith is a substance, the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. That's what, that's what faith is. Right? And again, as these guys took that venture in faith, where they see that God had already worked, but they would have never seen it unless they stepped out. Right? Now they stepped out and they saw it. For the other guy, man, we had the prophet of God telling him, look, man, God's going to do this. And he doubted Right? And again, it's our unbelief that keeps us from, from seeing the work of God in our lives. It's, it's that unbelief. And, and, and I say that because um, I know that there's a lot of us here who are, who are maybe believing God for something in our lives. Right? I don't know what that may be. For me right now, it's jobs and finances. And God is like stretching me. And healing too, but mainly job finances. Right? And, 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 and I mean, I have peace I do have peace that God's going to provide. I'm not doubting God, but yeah, you still got to go through it, right? And it's like, as we go through it, God is telling me, look, it's by faith, right? The Bible tells us in, in Corinthians that we walk by faith. It's not by sight. It's not by what we see. If these guys would have been led by what they see, they would have been paying attention to like, no, man, there's a whole army of Syrians surrounding us. Why we even step out there? We're just going to waste our energy. We're just going to waste our breath. Might as well just die here. We could die out there. Might as well just die, die here in our city. Right? But again, faith is, is a substance of things hoped for, right? The evidence of things not seen. We walk by, by faith. The Bible call, in, encourages us, exhorts us, instructs us to walk not by what we see, not by, not by how we feel, not by how you know, we may think that God's going to work, but, but, but by faith, trust in the Lord. Right? By faith and not by, by sight. And we see that God always provides and God always comes through in a way that we can't imagine. It's like, as I'm asking God for these main, like three main things, it's a few things, but like three main things, man, I can't help it but to come up with the game plan. Lord, this, this, that, and the other. I could do this, I could do that, I could do that, and I could just see it all play out. And the reality is that God, for the most part, never works the way we think he's going to work. Right? He always does it in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different way. The guys say, look, man, even if, if, God were to open a window in heaven, 
Now, he was looking at God in his own limited mind. He was thinking, well, there's Syrians outside the camp, so God couldn't do it through maybe going through the gate because there's Syrians there. But if God were to provide, then he would have to do it from the sky, right? Because there's enemies around us. Again, he was limiting God to his own limitations. He was perceiving God. He was describing God. He was seeing God and in, in the understanding of his own limitations, saying, well, that's the only way I can see God do it. Right? And sometimes, man, we get to that point, and the Lord will allow us to get to that point where we're like, man, I think God can do it, and I think this is the only way he can do it. And, and, and God allows us to get to that point because he's going to show us that he's going to do it in a whole different way that we can't even imagine. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above what we could ask or even imagine. And that's who God is. You know, that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above what we could ask or even imagine. But do we believe it? I read that verse all the time. I recite it to myself all the time. And then when it push comes to shove, God's like, do you believe that? I'm like, yeah, I believe it, Lord. I'm, I'm saying it. And he's like, no, do you really believe it? I'm like, I don't think so, Lord. Right? And the Lord will allow us to get to, to, to that point where, man, our faith is tested. You know, if push comes to shove, and God says, man, do you really believe it? Right? Because he's going to work a different way. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For your ways are not my ways, says the Lord, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. For as far as the heavens are from the earth, that's how different my ways are from your ways and my thoughts from your thoughts. So this is just an encouragement. I hope it was an encouragement. I didn't mean it to be like a rebuke or anything. But it's an encouragement of faith and for all of us. You know, again, this guy was his unbelief that kept him from seeing the work of God. Right? And it will be our unbelief that keeps us from seeing the work of God. The truth is that God's going to work no matter what. Whether we believe or don't, He's going to work. But it's our belief or unbelief that's going to either allow us to see it or allow us not to see it. Right? You could, uh, man, watch God do it from the sidelines or man, you could be in it. You could be in it. Right? You could experience it for yourself. These guys, the four lepers, they wanted to be in it. Right? They didn't, they didn't want to just wait for God's provision. Uh, Elisha had already told this guy, look man, God's going to provide He's going to do it this way. These guys didn't know about it. But God's word was going to be fulfilled no matter what. But if they hadn't stepped out, then they wouldn't have been those vessels that God used to fulfill that prophecy of Elisha. You know, and, so, and so for us, man, as God is desiring to do all kinds of things in our communities, in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, with our kids, whatever you, that, may, that may be that, that you're praying for, God's going to do it. But like, man, you could be part of it and you could see God's blessing. You could experience it. You could be the one whom God uses or you could watch on the sidelines. You know, I want to be like these guys, these four lepers. I said, you know what? What, what do we got to lose? Our lives, we're as good as dead. The Bible tells us like, man, what do we have to lose? Right? Paul would say, man, for me, it's better if I die. He says, I'll, be, I'll go be with Christ. He said, it's to your benefit that I'm here. But if it was up to me, man, I'd rather go be with Christ. And so many things that keep us from walking in the ways of the Lord, walking in God's perfect will for our life. We're like, well, what do I got to lose? My job, this, that, the other. It's like my life. It's like, man, go for it. Right? That's when it starts, man. When, when, when we die, that's when really eternity starts. And it's like, man, we get to be with the Lord. So like these guys, man, what do we got to lose? Our life? Psh, I'm walking dead, man, already. Amen? Father, I just thank you, Lord, and I just praise you for your word, Lord. And I pray, Father, God, that